Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3 today, actually the last verse of 2, 2.25 into 3. And uh, I realized right before I went into uh, the back room there to go do the baptisms, I, I had forgotten the towel. Yeah. So my wonderful wife, I said, I don't have a towel. And so she ran to the kitchen and got those, you know, three little bit eaty towels, yeah. And, and I'm dry, so there you go. It's all good. Yeah, my hair's dry for sure, yeah. Thanks for that. So verse 25 of chapter 2, and here's what Moses gives us here in the account of the fall. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, well, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. May the Lord add his blessing at the hearing and the reading of his word this morning. Well, from all appearances, they were the perfect couple as they walked down the aisle together in marriage. But there were things that were behind the scenes that weren't quite right. They were a Christian couple, and 
They moved way up north, and he started a business in a small community, and the business took off, was quite successful. They got involved in their church and started to grow spiritually in their church and started to have kids. And time goes on. Uh, he uh, is convicted as he's studying God's word and realizes that there's some things he wasn't honest about when he got married. And so he finally pulled his wife aside and said, hey, by the way, I know when we got married, I told you that... Uh, I'd never been with anyone before, but the reality is in my college days, I had been with quite a few women. And he confessed. And for a while, there was a separation. She was so angry, so bitter, she pulled away and was outside the house for a while. Time went by, and they worked things out, and they came back together. But her anger and disappointment just lingered there. And the marriage kind of turned south because she realized she had married a liar. As time went on, uh, out of her frustration, out of her bitterness, seeds that were planted long before now are coming to bloom. Some 15, 16 years later, and through what I would call a retaliatory sin, she decided to have an affair with the builder of their dream house. And he found out about it, and everything hit the fan. And for him, the marriage had been so bad for so long, his ticket was punched. I can finally get out of this bad marriage because of her mess up, because of what she did, because of her adultery. He blamed her for everything. All of us are so very capable of sin and rebellion in our lives, aren't we? And all of us are so willing to blame everyone else around us to somehow justify our own failures and sins against a holy and just God who we know will eventually deal with our sin. <clears throat> what we're talking about today relates to all of us. Why? Because all of us have sinned here. All of us are sinners. This isn't a message about someone else for someone else. This is a message for you. It's a message for me. And oftentimes when we sin, we do everything we can in our own minds to try to justify our rebellion. And one of the ways we justify ourselves is by making it everyone else's fault on why we chose to act the way we did, when in reality our sin is our own fault and no one else's. We need to own our sin. We need to own it. We need to own up to it. But it's so easy, so very easy to blame everyone else for our sins. It's so very easy to blame everyone else for how angry we become sometimes. He makes me so angry, or she makes me so angry. I'd like to remind you, you're not a puppet, where they just pull your string and anger comes out. Your anger is your choice, it's your decision. But we want to blame other people. We often blame God for our lack of provision, so we justify ourselves in not giving to him what is due him. When in reality, we've been horrible stewards of the resources he has so richly blessed us with. We blame our circumstances on why we have to lie and hide to cover things up so that we appear righteous and good to other people. It's so very easy to blame others or to blame God for acting out in rebellion against him sexually in ways that we shouldn't. We don't feel that God is meeting our needs, so we find ways to satisfy our own lusts. 
We say, but if God would just give me what I wanted, then I wouldn't have to sin like this. Or if he hadn't made me this way, then I wouldn't want to do these things. And so we blame God. Or we blame the evil one, right? We blame the evil one for tempting us in the first place as we are determined to do whatever we want to do. And in the process, the simple truth is that we are not really willing to trust God with our lives. We're all in the same boat this morning, beloved. This morning we are all rebellious and sinful. And we all wrestle with blaming someone else for our shortcomings and failures. But today in our study, we're going to see that it's so very easy for us to try to find ways to excuse our sin and failures. But in spite of the fact that we often blame everyone else for the sin that separates us from our Creator, separates us from each other, Jesus Christ is the promised one who mercifully calls us to return to him. He has radically saved us from all of our sin, and he has given us the victory over the evil one once and for all. In the first six verses of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have been tempted by the evil one. We talked about that last Sunday. We saw how Adam did not protect Eve, and Eve fell prey to the schemes of the serpent and ate of the fruit that God said they should not eat lest you die from what God said would happen in Genesis 2. But now sin has entered into the world through this couple, and now for all of us, we find ourselves susceptible and very capable of sinning against God and each other. But what will happen next? What was God going to do now that Adam and Eve had rebelled against him? Today we will see four spiritual principles in our text that will demonstrate how Jesus Christ is ultimately the promised one who can give us real victory over our sin in this life and in the life to come. But before we study, let's ask his help. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we just ask that you would be our guide, that you would be our teacher. Oh God, we want to hear from you, from your word more than anything today. This is too important a topic to miss. You are the promised one. So Lord, lead us, guide us, teach us. We humbly ask. Help us to attend to what you have to say. And Lord, pour out your spirit in this place through your word. Touch our hearts. Turn us toward you. Create in us a new heart, we ask. Thank you, Lord. Pray all this in your son's wonderful and awesome name this morning. Amen. If you have your sermon notes outlined from the program that you received this morning, here's the first truth. Sin, if you don't know this already, sin is the great separator. First of all here, it's sin that separates us from each other. That's what's going on. When we feel distant from people, it's because sin is lingering. Notice what it says in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, by the way, what class did they take to know that they're supposed to do that? Why are they covering things up? Why are they, in essence, hiding from each other? At the end of chapter 2, verse 25, which I keep reading in our passage, I, I'm doing that with a purpose it said that they were naked and not ashamed. Previously, they were able to receive each other, even with all their differences anatomically, with no shame or guilt whatsoever. 
They had great reception, unity, and oneness. But now, because of sin, there would be great shame, rejection, and separation. Note specifically what they're hiding. I mean, we read this, we kind of go, what kind of a pervert wrote this? But understand what's at stake here with what took place. They hide precisely their differences. And this is the issue, the principle of rejection rather than reception. Prior to sin, they were able to receive their differences, but now in sin, there is rejection based on the differences. So, okay, let's illustrate this a bit. I need to, sorry, Ron, I get to pick on you because you sit up front and I'm so thankful. So, so sorry, people up there, if you need to stand to see what's going on, go ahead. So look, we're in a relationship, let's say, Ron, which we are, and let's say somehow I offend you, right? Let's say I step on your toes. I, I, I hurt your feelings somehow. And right away what happens when we hurt each other, you're going to start thinking about things like, well, man, look at how bald that guy is. And you're going to start pointing out all the differences. Well, he's not as kind, as nice as I am. He's a hurtful person. And so we start pushing away from each other because we're different than each other. And we start hiding from each other. Until such times I go, oh, Ron, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. Would you please forgive me? Thank you, Ron. <laughs> and when he forgives me, boom, now we have reception and reconciliation. But until that time, when we are hurting each other, we're separated from each other. That's what sin does. Sin is the great separator. You know, when a couple comes to my office and they're having marital trouble, I don't need three degrees in psychology to figure out what's going on. Somebody's sinning. In all likelihood, both of them are. Something happened, and someone reacted unbiblically to whatever the occurrence was, and then now there's a responsive unbiblical response. And now you get into the toilet swirly, and down they go. It's like, uh, imagine it's like two ticks and no dog where they're sucking the life out of each other, sadly. This is why there is hatred, this is why there is murder. You guys, this is why there is racism. You're, you're different than me. Until such time as we can receive each other and go, no, we're not different at all. We're all sinners who are longing for a redeemer. Secondly, not only does sin separate us from each other, sin separates us from God. Not only are they sowing fig leaves, hiding from each other, Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And who, what class did they take on that? Who told them, by the way, whenever you sin, make sure you hide real quick. What's the principle by which they determined that we need to now hide from God? What principle was it that they needed to hide from each other? It was because they were different from each other now. And they could see it. And now, because of their sin against God Almighty, what do they know? They now know that they are different than God. Why? Because God is what? Holy, holy, holy. And they're not holy any longer. They're sinful, full of rebellion. They knew they could not be received by God in all of his beauty and all of his glory, all of his holiness, because they were now full of contempt and rebellion. Beloved, sin separates us from God, 
and each other. But secondly, understand that God is so incredibly merciful as he calls us to return to him. He's so merciful. Understand God's outrageous mercy here. Where is the lightning bolt? The minute they take a bite of the fruit, why? where's the... And they're electrocrisp and it's over. I mean, that's what God said. You eat of it, you're surely going to die. And, you know, the Bible ends in Genesis 3. It's all over. But what are we seeing? We always hear people say, well, you know, grace is in the New Testament. No, it's right here, Genesis 3. Because God comes alongside them. Notice his grace. It's right from the beginning, and now God seeks to restore them through three little questions. You notice the first question, verse 9, where are you? The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. As if God somehow misplaced them. I wonder where they are. I have no idea. No, he knows exactly where they are. He is being incredibly gracious. In verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? As if God doesn't know that either. I know what you've done. I know where you are. Who told you that? I know who told you that. I want to hear it from you. And thirdly, what have you done? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? Where are you? Who have you been with? What have you done? Again, as if God didn't know. Notice his outrageous, incredible grace. Amazing grace. That's what we sing, isn't it? All these questions point to one thing about God. He is so incredibly gracious toward us. He is so patient with us. He's so patient with me. He's so patient with you. He exercises long-suffering with us, we who are rebellious, as he comes to us and calls us to return to him. But thirdly this morning, we often blame shift when we are confronted with our own rebellion against God. That's what we do. It's clearly somebody else's fault that I'm rebellious. People often try to put the best light on their story. In the counseling room, oftentimes people will tell me their story and they'll make themselves the hero of their own story when in reality as I'm sitting there listening to it, I'm very skeptical because I'm thinking, well, what part did you play? And will you admit it? First of all, here we blame other people for our sin. Notice what the man says in verse 12. Well, the woman, that woman, and someone will say, well, I, uh, I wrestle with alcoholism because my father used to drink. You know, it's my dad. And I'll say, no, you don't. You don't wrestle with alcoholism because of your dad. You wrestle with alcoholism because you've chosen to drink. Sorry, that's what's true. I'm abusive because my parents were abusive. You of all people should know the pain and suffering caused by abuse. Choose now not to be abusive. 
you are only as angry as you've allowed yourself to become. We all know this. Or some will say, well, the educational system made me this way, or it was my time in the service. That's why I swear like a sailor. Sorry, no offense to sailors. But you don't have to swear, do you, Kevin? No, you don't. It's all a lie. It's all a put-off. It's somebody else's fault. I'm going to blame something else. Someone else. Generational sin does carry down. Mark my word. As a parent, man, it should scare you to death. Stuff that you're wrestling with, if you haven't dealt with it before God, it can carry down. Years ago, I had a dear friend of mine. Uh, The way it worked out is he met this gal that he fell in love with, and subsequently, Kathy and I, we, we met Kathy and I didn't get married, and my friend is still dating this girl. I mean, they're dating all this time, and Kathy and I have met and gotten married in, this, in, in less time frame, and they're still courting, they're still dating. And I finally said to him, so, you know, what's the deal? When are you going to marry this, this girl? And he's like, well, you don't understand. I mean, well, what, what do I understand? And he goes, well, you know how my parents are. And I was like, oh, yeah, I do know how your parents are. His parents were Christians, but there was a very, very unhappy ongoing relationship in their marriage. One slept upstairs, the one slept downstairs. And he watched that. I said, but don't you understand, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your marriage doesn't have to be like that. You know, go ahead and marry the girl. Brad, you don't understand. Well, what am I missing here? My grandparents were the same way. Oh, generational sin. And I think he's right in being concerned about that. Because Scripture speaks of it. But I encouraged him. I said, look, the whole point of the gospel, the whole point of Jesus Christ and walking with him is that you don't have to be what your parents were. You can be something different. That's the whole point of redemption, a new life. And by the way, if you don't love her, I'll come and I'll deal with you. That's what I told him. Lovingly. And I'm happy to tell you they're married, you know, four kids later, and they love each other, and it's beautiful, and they're involved in full-time ministry. Incredible testimony to faithfulness in Christ. Beloved, we need to take ownership for our rebellion before God. We shouldn't be blaming other people for our sin. But secondly, we oftentimes blame God for our sin. Actually, if you really listen closely to what Adam is saying In his response to God in verse 12, he says, the woman, the woman you gave me, you gave her to me, it's your fault. You catch that? We often blame God for our sin. We say things like, well, you know, God made me with all these passions, all these desires. And I'd like to remind you, God did not make you a sinner. You are a sinner because all of us have been born in sin because of Adam's rebellion. We are all sinners by birth and by choice, we would say theologically. We are all sinners by birth and choice, and now we freely choose to sin as Adam sinned. God did not make you a liar. You've chosen not to trust God with the truth, so you lie. Perhaps you're wrestling with substance abuse this morning. God did not make you an alcoholic or a drug addict. You made yourself one through your own stubborn rebellion against God. Perhaps you're wrestling with pornography and lust this morning. God did not make you a pornographer. You've made yourself one with every click you make. 
with every image you ogle, every video you devour. If you're wrestling with homosexuality today, God did not make you a homosexual. You've chosen to rebel against God's clear and beautiful design for marriage between one man and one woman. And when people choose this, they are choosing to rebel against God's created order. In terms of his design for marriage, we're rebelling against God's commandments when he says you shall not do this. And ultimately, we rebel against God's character because he's the one who says it's evil. And for us to come along and say, no, we don't think it's evil, is to impeach God's character and say, oh, we think you're wrong about that, God, and we've got a better assessment. How dare we? So we blame God for our sin. The same is true with the liar, the adulterer, the thief, the idolater. But the good news is, if God did not make us sinners, then there really is hope in overcoming sin once and for all in our lives through Christ. You mean I can really have ongoing victory over my rebellion with God's help through Christ? Absolutely. Have you found victory in Christ over your rebellion? Are you able to say, you know, I used to do those things, but I don't do them anymore. I've got things in my world that that's the case. I used to be this way, but I'm not so much anymore. A work in progress, growing in grace. We're all a gracious work. For those who are in Christ Jesus, we're all in progress as God purposes to conform us to the image of his beautiful son. But let's not blame other people. Let's not blame God. Or thirdly here, let's not blame the evil one because that's what Eve does. Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's say, oh, the devil made me do it. Again, nobody's making you do anything that you don't already want to do in your own rebellion. Notice how no one takes the blame here. No one, no one steps up and says, this is my fault. This is my failure. Adam blames Eve and God, and Eve blames the evil one. By the way, next week we'll discuss who really is at fault here, so don't miss that next week. But fourthly, as we bring hope to this discussion, fourthly this morning, and lastly, Jesus Christ is the promised one who has radically saved us from our sin. And you're like, where is Jesus in this passage? Well, let me show you how beautiful it is. First of all, Jesus is the promised seed, the promised seed of a woman. Notice what it says in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And you go, okay, what's going on here? Okay, I need another couple to pick on. Okay, good. Here's one. Yeah, I know. You sat too close, didn't you? Okay, I'll stand over here. Okay, I'm, okay. I'm going to be God. I'm not God, okay? I just want to say that, be that clear. And you get to be the woman, so that works for you. And, and you get to be the serpent. Okay, sorry, Nick. Okay, so this is, this is God talking to the two of them, and he says to the serpent, okay, do you see this woman? 
There's going to be a seed. There's going to be a child that comes from this woman. And this child is going to smash your face. Crush your head. That's what it says. Hebrew euphemism for destruction. This child is going to come. He's going to smash your face. You're going to hurt him a little bit. You're going to bruise him on the heel. But he's going to destroy you. Got it? Now think about it. If, if you're the evil one, I mean, God just gave you the game plan, right? God just told you, here's what's going to happen. There's a child coming, and he's going to deal with you. Now, if you're the evil one, are you infinite? Do you know all things? No, you're a finite, created, fallen being. That's what you are. We talked about this several weeks ago. And so as a, as a rebellious, finite being, he doesn't know. Satan, Lucifer, has no idea how this is going to play out. But you can imagine in his mind, he's like, must stop seed, right? Must stop this child somehow. Now watch how the whole Old Testament unfolds and leads us to the New Testament. How so? Because Adam and Eve start having children, don't they? Yes. Who do they have? They have Cain and Abel, right? And you can imagine the evil one thinking to himself, I know, if I can get one of them to follow me and have him take out the other, I win. And that's exactly what he did. Cain's countenance goes down. We'll talk about that later in his rebellion. And he kills his brother. And you can imagine Lucifer, got it, I've got it. Except for what? The seed line doesn't go through Abel. It goes through who? Seth. Ah, you guys are good Bible students. Of course, the descendants of Seth intermarry with the descendants of Cain, and the whole race is corrupted. Over and over again, the evil one keeps attacking the seed line. Follow the Old Testament story. Of course, God has to bring judgment by way of a global flood. Beloved, the whole Old Testament, you want to know what the whole Bible is in a nutshell? Here it comes. It's not complicated. Okay, the whole Old Testament is here he comes. Here comes the seed. Here comes the promised one. The New Testament is here he is. That's the Bible right there. The whole thing. He is the promised seed. Now I want you to see this real quickly here because this is huge. Genesis 4.25. Whenever you see the word offspring, especially in the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word zarah, which means literally seed. The offspring. Genesis 4.25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another what? Offspring, another seed instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. In Noah, Genesis, Genesis 9, 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring, with your seed after you, God says to Noah. With Abraham, Genesis 12, 7, And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, that is to your seed, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Genesis 15, 5, and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be, so your seed shall be. Genesis 17, 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, that is your seed, after you throughout their generations from an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. To David, Psalm 132, 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which you will not turn back one of the sons of your body, that is from your seed line, I will set on your throne. 
God says. Isaiah, in Isaiah 7 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. There it is. There's the child. And shall call his name Emmanuel. That is God with us. The apostle Paul writes in Galatians 4 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Lastly here, Galatians 3.16, and now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, that is to his seed. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And you go, awesome, fantastic. The whole seed line. By the way, you know those parts in the Bible where you read, you know, and -and so-and-so begot so-and-so and -and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and and you're like, well, this is really boring. I'm going to move on now. I want to tell you that's the most important part because that's the seed line of the coming Messiah. Got to have it. He's the promised seed, but not only that. Secondly here, he is the promised conqueror, this redeemer, this child that's coming. Oh, by the way, I need to say this. Did I have that up there? Proto-evangelium. Did we get that up there? Silent? Yeah. Proto-evangelium. There's a 50 cent theological word. Proto. The first mention of the gospel is Genesis 3.15. You know John 3.16? This is Genesis 3.15. The proto-evangelium. The first mention of the gospel. But secondly this morning, he is the promised conqueror. On your belly you will go, God says to the serpent, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Understand with no uncertainty that through Christ, God has completely defeated Satan. Dust you will eat. Hebrew euphemism for total defeat. At the cross, Jesus conquered death and the evil one once and for all. It won't be on the screen. Paul writes of it in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to what Paul writes. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our promised conqueror who will not only defeat Satan, but utterly destroy him altogether. You shall bruise his head. Again, Hebrew euphemism for total destruction. With regard to the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28, 19, All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You've come to a dreadful end, O evil one, and shall be no more forever. In the book of Revelation in 2010, we're told, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented tormented day and night forever and ever. The, The evil one will ultimately endure eternal ongoing destruction forevermore. But lastly, not only is he the promised seed and the promised conqueror, he is our promised redeemer. You shall bruise his heel. Even one, you're going to hurt this coming seed a little bit. 
You're not going to destroy him. You're going to bruise him. He is the promised Redeemer King, this Jesus, who was bruised for our transgressions in reference to a non-fatal wounding. Isaiah 53, it won't be on the screen, but listen closely. Description of the Messiah. We studied this over Christmas. He was despised. <coughs> he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed it's John the Baptist who says of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, how does the Lamb of God do that? Through suffering for us, laying down his life that we might live. Lastly here, Revelation 17, 14. They'll make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. He's the promised Redeemer who conquers. For he is this coming promised one, this seed, he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Beloved, he is this promised redeemer, the promised conqueror, the redeemer, King of kings and Lord of lords, who is bruised for you to redeem you from all of your sin, all your rebellion, all my sin, all my rebellion. God has provided a victorious redeemer king for each one of us who is Christ. Well, as I mentioned, this man had his ticket punched. He could get out of his marriage. His marriage had been bad for a long time. His wife had become an adulteress. And so in Christian circles, aha, you're an evil person. I can get out of the marriage now. Only one problem he had is that uh, when she was confronted with her rebellion, she contacted every member in her family and she wrote a letter and apologized for her moral failure. She even wrote a letter to her husband saying, I'm so sorry I have failed. I've sinned not only against you, but I've sinned against God. In other words, she was repentant. And now he had a real problem because he wanted out of this marriage that had been so messed up for so long. And now she's repentant. I had the opportunity to work with this guy and I had to point out to him that, wait a minute, you're missing something here, sir. You're trying to blame her for everything, when in reality, you are the one who set the stage for it all because you lied to her when you got married. You misrepresented who you were, and you are just as culpable as she is. You're both a couple of sinners. Don't stand on some high pedestal like as if you don't have anything to bring to the table. And by God's grace, his eyes were open to that reality. And finally, he, too, wrote a letter of apology to his wife for setting up the whole thing with his moral failure before they got married. And I can tell you happily to this day, mind you, this took place well over 25 years ago, and they're still together, and they're still loving each other and enjoying their grandchildren together by God's grace. That's what God can do. I've seen God do amazing things with people who are broken over their sin, who are willing to confess, to say they're sorry so that they can get rid of the separation where they can finally be reunited and reconciled in relationship, where they can find their unity and their oneness again. 
And not only finding their unity and their oneness with each other, but finding forgiveness and restoration with God through Christ. This is what he calls us to. Beloved, it's so easy for us to try to find ways to excuse our sins and failures, which often leads to blame shifting. But in spite of the fact that we often blame everyone else for the sin that separates us from our creator and each other, Jesus Christ is the promised one who mercifully calls us to return to him. Oh, he's so merciful. Turn to him now, if you haven't already. He has radically saved us from all of our sin, and he gives us the victory over the evil one once and for all. Beloved, we don't have to keep blaming each other. We can take responsibility for our own actions, for our own failures, and seek forgiveness and restoration through turning to Christ. I ask you this morning as we close here, is Jesus Christ your king? He is the promised one who will give you victory. Have you confessed your rebellion to him? I pray this morning that you will do that. If you haven't already, ask him for forgiveness even right now. Would you please stand with me as we close our service? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we recognize that everybody in this room has things to deal with. There's not a righteous person in the bunch. They're wonderful people. I love these people, but we're all a bunch of sinners here. And oh Lord, we all need your grace. We all need your forgiveness and your redemption. Oh God, forgive us for our arrogance. Lord, forgive us for blaming everybody else. Lord, forgive us for blaming you, for blaming the evil one, or our marriage partner, or the employer, or the employees, or our kids. Oh God, may we take responsibility for those things that we brought on the table. And Lord, may we seek your face, asking you, oh God, please forgive me for my rebellion. Forgive me for my arrogance my self-righteousness. Would you cleanse me, O God? Wash me clean, as your word says. Remove my sin from me as far as the east is from the west. O God, renew a right spirit within me that I might not sin against you. O God, help us. Help us to stay close to your truth close to Christ, our promised deliverer, our promised redeemer, the proto-evangelium, the, the once and for all Christos, the Christ, the sent one, the Messiah, the Mashiach, the one you promised of old here in Genesis 3.15. Oh God, may we stay close to him, our lamb who takes away our sins. Oh God, help us. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who's never heard any of this before, Lord, it's my prayer that they would turn to you right now and seek your face and seek a personal relationship with you as these children demonstrated for us at the beginning of the service that they gave their lives to you and they want to follow you. If that's where you are this morning, if that's your heart that you need to give your life to Christ, oh, do so. Invite him to be your Savior even right now. Find forgiveness. Find direction and peace in your life. Find restoration and reconciliation with God. 
and he will grant you the tools and the help for you to make things right with other people around you. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for attending to us through the amazing power of your word. It's so clear who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, you're so gracious. Thank you. We pray all this in your son's wonderful and awesome name this morning. And all God's people said, amen. Have a fantastic week. Don't get stuck in a snowdrift.